Please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 4. If you're wondering where we're going to go next week, I'm, I plan to spend a little time on the alphabet of godliness in Psalm 119, and uh, that should take us up past Christmas, I imagine, and uh, we'll be looking in the men's Bible study after we finish First John at the book of Revelation, and we'll continue doing Philippians for a while in the morning, I think. With the Word of God open, let's pray. O Lord our God and our Father, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped, made ready unto every good work. And yet, Father, there are some Scripture passages that just thrill our heart to read and to preach, and Ruth 4 is one of them. And we pray this evening, O Lord God, that You would so strengthen me that I would get out of the picture and that, that none but Jesus only would shine forth from this text and that the congregation would be left seeing Him and Him alone and that You would catch up all of our hearts, O God, to consider what a wonderful God You are as we read this story that truly and really is vintage Yahweh. And we offer these prayers, O God, that You will use this Scripture according to the needs of each man, woman, boy, and girl in this place, that You would save the lost, restore the backslider, O God, and the pathways of Your righteousness for Your namesake, and build us all up in faith, hope, and love, that we might live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself for us. And we offer these prayers in His name. Amen. This is the Word of God. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he, took, he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, but if you will not, tell me that I may know for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So, when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Chilion and to Machlon 
Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Machlon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from his brothers, from among his brothers, and from among the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people were at the gate, and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the woman will give you, sorry, that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap, and she became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Ubud. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nation, Nation fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Ubud, Ubud fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, there is a logic to the gospel that is hard to embrace, but you must embrace it. Embracing it, though, will feel like death, even though it's the only path to life. It'll feel like losing, even though it's the only path to winning. It's the path of self-denial, and you'll never know what it is to follow Jesus Christ until you follow Him down this road. Jesus summed it up well in Mark 4 and 34, and calling the crowd to Him with His disciples, He said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. If you try and hold on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life, you'll find it. It's that trope that we see all the time in the disaster movies. There's always some idiot, prideful, arrogant man who's determined to save himself. And you can mark it down, just as sure as in Star Trek, the no-name characters, the ones who are certainly going to die when they beam down onto the, onto the planet. Um, it's that man in the disaster movies who will certainly die a horrible death before you're halfway through the movie. He'll try and save himself and end up losing his life. And it's the hero, of course, who often lays his life down 
that paves the way for everyone to escape from the earthquake or the volcano or the sinking ship or some other great disaster. And the passage before us this evening is a living illustration of that truth. And I want to walk you through it under a number of headings. First of all, we see a man who held on but lost out. He tried to hold on to his life and ended up losing it, metaphorically at least speaking. And we see that in the first three verses. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down, and behold, the Redeemer, the nearer, remember there was a man nearer to Boaz who, who could have redeemed uh, Ruth, and Naomi and Ruth didn't seem too keen to go after this guy, and partly it was because God's providential lot happened that um, Ruth fell upon Boaz's land, but I think they probably knew this wasn't the kind of man that Ruth would do well under his headship, I don't know. But whatever the case, this Redeemer comes before us here. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by, and Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. At the gates, that's where the elders sat at the city. That's where the business was done, right? He turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So far, so good, right? And so this man uh, actually never told his name. He's reduced in the Hebrew, literally one um, scholar says, to Mr. So-and-so. We never told his name, which is interesting. We'll hear about, more about that later on. But the one thing we do know about this guy is that he's a shrewd operator. He's a canny guy who recognizes a good piece of real estate when it's presented before him. He knows the, the, the whole theory of redemption, that when you buy, when you redeem a land, right, you're responsible to look after the widow of the man whose land it was. And at the year of Jubilee, though, that land was supposed to return to the male heir of that family, thus potentiating um, the man's name in the promised land forever. And Boaz makes that explicitly clear later in the passage. But here's the wonderful thing for this Redeemer. It wasn't much of a redemption. Naomi is childless. And she's got Ruth with her, of course. Well, he doesn't know that at this stage. But Naomi's there, and Naomi is past childbearing age. And so this man can take Naomi on, um, get her land, be out the money it costs to feed her. But she's an older woman, so she's not going to eat that much. Provide for her for a few years. And then when she dies, oh, there's no male heir to give the land to. And the land then reverts to him, and he gets this glorious piece of property that becomes his and his own son's possession forever. So it's a win-win deal from the standpoint of business. And uh, Boaz knows that. And so Boaz, he presents the bait and hides the hook. And in verse 5, out comes the hook. By the way, I forgot to tell you, the day you buy the field from the land hand of Menomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. There's a catch, Boaz says. There's always a catch. <laughs> you have to marry Ruth. Are you willing to do that? 
And this presents a problem, of course, for the man for two reasons. First of all, not only will he have to shell out money to buy the land and look after Naomi all her days, but he'll have to marry Ruth. And Ruth is a young lass, well within childbearing years, and he will have the duty of fathering a child upon her. And there's a fair chance that she'll produce a son, and that son will become the heir of that land, and he will, it'll go to the son, he, the first son he fathers by Ruth, or any surviving sons that he fathers by Ruth, and he will not get the land. And so it, it moves from a win-win deal into a lose-lose deal. And he doesn't want that. The deal will give him nothing but the opportunity to pour himself out for the sake of a widow and the childless family of Elimelech. As one commentator put it, costly ministry without any personal payoff you got to be kidding. Forget it. That's this man's mindset. And he's a perfect illustration of the mindset that tries to hold on to life, that does not pour itself out, lay itself down, give itself up, that wants to take the safe road, not the Calvary road, and certainly not the Via Dolorosa. It's your mindset and my mindset by nature. We have to kill that mindset and put it to death. But it was the only mindset this Redeemer had, and so he ended up becoming no Redeemer at all. He's a picture of a man who held on to life and ended up losing it. And isn't it interesting, as this man misses the very logic of the gospel he loses the opportunity of sacrifice and self-denial and of becoming a part of the greatest story ever told. And in, in contrast to Elimelech and Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, who are named, and whose names are preserved in the Bible and through the promised land and through human history forever, this Redeemer is deliberately never named. In the end and forever, He is a nameless loser. And that's always what happens when we turn away from the logic of Jesus. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. In those little moments of ministry where you reach out and you take a risk and you expose yourself to hurt perhaps by forgiving somebody who sinned against you again and again and again, or by serving somebody who's taken advantage of you in the church maybe again and again and again, or not backing back. When, when someone's hurt you and you have the opportunity of hurting them back, giving a good stab, and, you, and you, you, you pull back and it feels like you're dying. Everything inside you think, oh, I'll feel so alive if I lash out with my tongue. But actually, it's a pathway of death. And as we say no to ourselves. And yes to Jesus, even though it feels like dying, it's the pathway to life.
It's the pathway to life. A man who held on and lost out. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Well, what will you give in exchange for your soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my word in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also the Son of Man will be ashamed. It's that moment at work. Now, there's a time to speak and there's a time to remain silent. And as we said this morning in our sermon, we need to have great wisdom to tell the one from the other. What's good, what's better, and what's best. Is it an opportunity to witness for Christ, or is it a temptation to cast my pearls before swine and to allow them to trample me under their feet and destroy me? It takes tremendous wisdom, the kind of wisdom you'll not find in here or in here. You only find it on your knees in prayer. But there'll be times in your life when you have an opportunity to stand up and speak out for Christ. And, you, and it's going to feel like dying, and you might lose a great deal for doing it. But it's the pathway to life. And the devil will say to you, hold on to your life, son or daughter. Don't, don't give it up. Hold on to your life. And Jesus tells you, and this Redeemer shows you, it's the pathway to becoming a nameless loser. Where are you tempted this evening to hold on to life when the gospel is calling you to let it go? Where are you tempted this evening to hold on to your treasure, perhaps, when the gospel's calling you to lay it down? And I don't just mean your money, I mean your time and your talents and everything. It feels like dying, but it's the pathway to life. A man who held on, but lost out. Secondly, I want you to see a man who gave up, but got back. Contrast the, the first Redeemer's example with Boaz. He gives himself for the sake of others. Then the Redeemer said in verse 6, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. At least he was honest. <laughs> but he gained his inheritance on the world and got nothing more in eternity, perhaps. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was a custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech. Notice he begins with Elimelech. And all that belong to Chilion and to Machlin, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Machlin, I have bought to be my wife. Why? To perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. The name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the, the gate of his native place. Your witnesses this day. It's, it's, it's not superstition. It was, like, it was an Old Testament picture of the gospel. We live on in the, in the eternal land, the new heavens and the new earth, right? In the Jewish mindset, 
It was a visible picture, but your family obtained salvation as your children lived on in the promised land, waiting for the Messiah to come. And they believed when He came, He would raise all the Jews who were, who were buried in the promised land, which is why Jacob and Joseph were so concerned to have their, body, their bones buried in the promised land, right? And it's a, it's a visible picture of an invisible reality, just like baptism and the Lord's Supper. Notice that Boaz is not thinking about what he can get from the deal. He's thinking only of what he can give to this family. That's the logic of the gospel. Here's the mind of Christ, the one who was rich, and yet for your sake he became poor. What did Christ get from the deal? He was the Son of God. He became the sin of the world. He was surrounded by the praise of angels, and He came to the world to be cursed and rejected and butchered by men. Why? Because in the heart of Jesus Christ, there's a goodness that prefers to give than to get. There's something intrinsic to ultimate reality, a revelation of the very nature of God Himself, that it's more blessed to give than receive. When the Father looked out at a lost, dying world, of which you were a member, what did His nature impel Him to do? Well, of course, it would, the right thing would be to wipe us out, as He wiped out the demons. But there was something in His heart, at the very core of His being, that said, what will it take to redeem these people? It'll take my son, my only son whom I love. And he so loved the world that he gave his son. He gave him. He's the giving God. And the son, he comes and he gives himself not just for the Father. That's easy to, I, can, I can easily imagine Jesus saying, I'll go and save these wasters for you, Father. But He came. Remember in, remember in um, Titus, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave Himself for us. He gave Himself for us, not just His time, not just his energy, not just his blood and his sweat and his tears. He gave himself the totality of his being was the price of your redemption to redeem us from every lawless deed. There's always a price to pay for redemption, and the price for Jesus was himself. Everything he was, everything he had. It's like a friend of mine, when I was in India, he, he, we flew in to um, the Bombay airport. It's not Bombay anymore, but there were two. There, there were two. Um, there's, a, there's a domestic terminal and there's an international terminal, and they're miles apart. And you've got to get a bus from one to the other. And the bus is a pretty dilapidated minibus, hard to miss, 
are easy to miss. And my friend, going across to do our medical elective with me, he got on the wrong bus. And instead of being taken to the domestic terminal to get his flight to Bangalore, he was taken off into the slums. And at gunpoint, he was politely or impolitely robbed. And the guy, he says to the, the guy, how much do you want? As he pulls out his wallet with all of his money in it. And the man said, how much do you have? Well, when the father looked at his son and said, my son, you've got to go and redeem these people. The father said to his son, or the son said to the father, how much will it cost, father? And the father said, son, how much have you got? Because it'll cost everything you have and everything you are. You have to give yourself that's more even than your life. You've got to give yourself for their redemption. And Jesus went, not just because He loved the Father, but because He loved you. He loved me. In the particularity of my grubby little way of sinning against Him, He loved me and gave Himself up for me. To purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good works. Good, good works. His own possession. The word possession um, is, a, is a word for a precious possession, something that's yours, that's been given to you, that you'll treasure all your life. It was Josiah's birthday this week, and I bought him a, a, a bench-made pocket knife, and I hope he'll keep it all his life. You look at it and remember, my father gave this to me on my 16th birthday, a treasured possession. And Jesus, the Father gave you to Jesus, and He treasures you. It's amazing. Treasures you. And Boaz is a little picture of Jesus here. As Jesus said at the end of His life, remember? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, loves his life, loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And remember he says in John 12, what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour, but for this very purpose I have come to this hour. For the joy that was set before him, he despised the cross and endured the shame, the shame of becoming the greatest sinner there ever was. Crucified, Luther said, between the two thieves, as if he was their chief and ruler, the greatest sinner, the greatest thief, the greatest blasphemer, the greatest adulterer and fornicator. Christ represented us all there in that moment upon the cross, and the shame of it, the shame of it, and he despised it as if it was nothing. The shame was worth it, wife. The, the joy that was set before him of bringing many sons to glory.
And Boaz had that mindset. He came not to get, but to give. And everybody knew wherever that mindset pops up, there's sure to be blessing. Verse 11, then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. These two women were literally mothers of a whole nation. They're the root of Israel. And people said, Ruth, we're going to, you're going to be like Leah, not just, you're going to, in your one womb, you're going to be like Leah and Rachel. A whole nation's going to come from you. Why? Because you're marrying into a family led by a man in whose heart there are echoes of the heart of Christ, who came not to get, but to give. When people lay down their lives in the service of the people of God, blessings always follow. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your offspring be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. More about that later. It's what Paul said, wasn't it, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure, this treasure of Christ in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul, in his ministry, was constantly being delivered over to death. And I see the same spirit in you. I see in you women, some of you leaning in in a difficult marriage and, and giving yourself up and refusing to scold an unbelieving husband into the kingdom. You know you can't do that, so you pray for him, and he's rude to you, he's obnoxious, he's horrible to you, but you respond with a meek and gentle spirit that Peter says is precious in the eyes of God. God looks down, you to see her, a gentle spirit is precious in my sight. And life's been hard to you, and you've had a bitter life, but it's not made you bitter because the life of Christ is in you, and you're giving yourself up to it day after day after day. And as you die to yourself, life springs up. I see husbands doing the same thing, loving unconverted children in the home that curse them and hate them and resist them, and yet you love them and, and you discipline them, yes, while you can, and then when they leave the home, you're always leaving the door open for the next conversation. You're laying yourself down, giving yourself up, going the extra mile, loving them. I see men and women in this congregation struggling with cancer, and you're my heroes. As your outer man is perishing, or so it seems and so it feels, 
And yet you say by faith, though he slay me, yet will I cling to him. And you push on and you press on. And the life of Christ is in you, even though the rounds of chemotherapy feel as if they're killing you. And I see your wives and your husbands watching on from the sidelines, and they would gladly exchange your cancer for theirs if they could just rescue you. And they're praying for you, and they're encouraging you, and they're gathering children round under the shelter of their wings, and holding it all together as women so often are the only ones who can. And and you're refusing to get bitter about it, and you're holding on to Jesus, and it feels like you're dying, but the life of Christ is coming. Afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. The angels look down upon you and they say, oh, isn't he, isn't he just like their elder brother? Little flashes of Jesus in them. A man who held on and lost out. A man who gave up but got back. Thirdly, a woman who was empty but became full. God did not leave Naomi without a redeemer. He put an end to her childlessness. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, who, in case you forgot, was the father of David. He shall be a returner of life to you. Remember the key word in, in chapter 1, death. Again and again and again, death robbed Naomi of life. First Elimelech died, and then Machlon, and then Killian. And she was left alone again and again and again. And trudging back to Bethlehem, this matriarch of a long line of dead men, what a bitter lot was hers. She thought she had nothing. All I have is Ruth, a Moabitess, she thought to herself, who didn't have the sense to go back with Orpah of nothing. And the woman here deliver her another one of God's gentle rebukes. Even without Boaz, Ruth was better to you than seven sons. 
But now this fruitful girl has given you a son, and with him he has restored life and hope to the line of Elimelech. Vintage Yahweh. A woman who was empty but became full. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind the frowning providence, He hides His smiling face. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The, crowd, the, the clouds you so much dread are big with blessings and shall break with blessings on your head. A woman who was empty but became full. And maybe you're at the empty side of the equation right now. Maybe God's emptying you out. Listen to Naomi. If she's here this evening, she'll tell you, don't judge the Lord by feeble sense. Don't build your theology upon your circumstances. God is much better than you think. As you follow Christ, I promise you, your end will be much better than your beginning. And lastly, a plan that took evil and brought good. A plan that took evil and brought good. Let's look again at verse 12. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. The writer of Ruth, whoever it was, takes us back to Perez, that little boy that God brought out of dirty old Judah. And it goes, of course, to, to, to Genesis 38, which wasn't, shall we say, the highlight of, Judah, of Jacob's life or Judah's life. Genesis 38. Turn there with me a second. Let's look at this chapter. We're almost finished. Bear with me in the last straight. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. So Judah here has left the promised line, and he's marrying himself to a Canaanite, not what you want to do. And she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. And she conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Unan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chazib when she bore him, and Judah took a wife for Ur of his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty that Boaz will one day do for another one of our family, perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. 
And the Hebrew says this happened again and again and again and again. He was using her for his own pleasure and not fulfilling his duty to provide a son for her dead husband. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, obviously she's cursed. We can't give, I'm not going to give Sheila to you because he might die too, because the problem is you. Judah's so blind here, right? Remain a widow in your father's house till Sheila may my son grow up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. And in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died, and Judah was comforted, and he goes down to the sheep shears. Now, this is a long time of separated, and Tamar realized, of course, that Judah had no intention of giving Sheila, his precious son, to her. So what was she to do? Well, she went down, you remember the story, and she pretended to be a prostitute. And Judah went down, and as he was doing business in the town, he was dead, as he had no wife of his own, so he felt the urge, so he went into the prostitute, and it was actually his daughter-in-law. But he didn't know it was his daughter-in-law. He thought she was a prostitute. And in the providence of God, she fell pregnant. And Judah, of course, left his credit card, his car keys, and his garage door opener with her as a guarantee that he would pay her. And when he went back to pay her, she'd gone, and that was bad. So then in the course of time, um, it turns out that Tamar was pregnant. And self-righteous old Judah <laughs> brings her forth and says, it's okay, where sin has abounded, grace will much more abound. It's okay. Trust in Jesus. No, he says, you will surely die. By whom are you pregnant? And she says, well, by the guy who owes these credit cards and these car keys and this garage door opener, I'm pregnant. And Judah says, ah, she's more righteous than I. It's a, it's a horrible moment in the life of the family of God. Now, none of this should encourage you to do things like this, by the way, right? But when you have done things like this, and most of us have been similarly foolish and wicked in our lives, it does give you some hope that the God of Jacob and the God of Judah is still alive and is able to take our worst mistakes and weave them around for His glory and our good. And so, over, over the course of time, she comes to have these children. And actually, there were two of them, twins. At the end of the chapter, when she was in labor, one put out his hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread in his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez, which means breach in the Hebrew. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. And in case you missed that, in verse 18, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. And Boaz married Obed. Stop there a second. Do you ever wonder how Boaz, this righteous man, could even conceive of the fact, pun not intended, how could Boaz marry a Moabite? That's, that's a huge step, isn't it? A huge step. Well, if you go, yes, if you go, if you go to Matthew's gospel in chapter 1, it just might become clear. 
Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, the harlot of Jericho. How did Boaz marry a pagan, Gentile? Because his mother before she met Jesus, was the whore of Jericho. And when she came into the promised land and trusted Yahweh and became a Jewess, in a sense, by faith, she met this man, Salmon. And Salmon married her. And she gave birth to a little boy whose name was Boaz. And I rather suspect growing up in her lap with a little boy, Rahab never tired of telling her son again and again, if Yahweh can find a place for me in his kingdom, he can find a place for anyone. And so it's no surprise when Boaz's hap happened to fall across the line of Naomi. He didn't balk from marrying her. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And as we say, we're off to the races. And you see Matthew's point as he tells this story, this story of the family of Jesus, they're a great line of sinners. Only three women are mentioned. Well, four really, I suppose, but you've got Rahab and Ruth and Tamar and the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, from whom Solomon came. And Matthew's point is that Jesus came from a great line of sinners, fornicators, adulterers, a prostitute. Take the blood of Christ and send it off to Ancestry.com and cursing through the blood of God's own Son in heaven are the, is the DNA of a Jericho prostitute. And Matthew's telling you that because he came from a great line of sinners, and he came for a great line of sinners. You will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Sinclair Ferguson says this, and I'll close. Let me read two things, and I'll close. We must never limit the purposes of God as though he were doing only one thing at a time, in only one person and one place at a time, here and now and in me. Sometimes we can be deeply puzzled by the circumstances of our lives. What is God doing? Too frequently we focus attention on ourselves, 
as though the answer lay within our individual lines, as if we were the central key to interpreting the plan of God for the universe. God is intimately aware of us and deeply concerned for our welfare, but His providential purposes, which include me, do not center on me, as though what He is doing in me could be isolated from everything else He is doing. No, God's purposes crisscross and zigzag and cross-fertilize one believer's life with that of an unbeliever, or one believer's experience with another believer's. He's always simultaneously and contemporaneously doing several things in several lines, all at the same time, and all of the time focusing on the only thing that should be focused on, and that is the glory of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ian Duguid says, with a wave of His hand, He reveals to us at the end, the very end, that the story has not just been about God providing a solution for the needs of certain individuals. No, in the process, God is also paving the way for the King that His people need. So, this is not just a story of God's covenant faithfulness, His chesed to Naomi and Ruth. No, it's about God's covenant faithfulness, His chesed to the whole nation of Israel and beyond the whole nation to you and to me. The Israelites haven't even thought about asking for a king yet. They're still lost in the days of judges. But God has already provided for their need, as is always the case with Yahweh. Before we call, before we even sense that we have a need, He's already begun to provide for it. And it seems to me you could trust a God like that. I don't know what God's doing in all of your lives, but He's weaving it all together. The good, the bad, the ugly, the life and the health and the sickness and the death, the mountaintops and the valleys, He's weaving it all together, Paul says, into an administration suitable for the fullness of times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. And you find life in wrenching self out of the center of the picture, which is where we always want to put it, and in one sense saying, Lord, I don't know why, I don't know why you're doing this to me, but it's enough to know that you're doing this to me to bring about the glory of Jesus. And that's the lesson not just of the book of Ruth, but of the whole sweep of human history from the beginning to the end. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. What can we say, O God, but great is thy faithfulness? Pray, Lord, that you would open the hearts and minds of every man, woman, boy, and girl to look to Jesus that they might find life. For they'll never find life away from him where only death can be found. They'll never find meaning away from him where only darkness can be found. Subdue our hearts to yourself, Lord Jesus, for Christ's sake. Amen.